0: Today's reading will be taken from Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write in a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, "'and with a golden sash round his chest. "'His head and hair were white like wool, "'as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. "'His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, "'and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. "'In his right hand he held seven stars, "'and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. "'His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. "'When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead.' Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive for forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
1: This is God's word. thank you. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, one and all. Let's uh, pray as we turn to this together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And were it not for that day, we would not be gathered together. We would not have the future that we have. We would not have a relationship that we have with you now. It's a wonderful day. And as we come now to consider the Lord Jesus Christ as he is in glory, the risen, uh, ascended, and exalted one, would we be struck by his majesty, his power, his care for us? Would we love him? Would we have confidence to live for the praise of his name? Amen. Amen. Now, Revelation 1, well, it may not be the most obvious thing, or perhaps on uh, Easter Day, yet it is an extraordinary picture of Jesus Christ as he is now. And I wonder if you think of him in these terms. Because of imagery, it's much easier to conceive, think of Jesus Christ upon a cross than it is to think of him, perceive of him as risen and in glory. We see more pictures, I think, probably of the cross. And him in glory is, well, what does it look like? Well, it looks a little bit like this in Revelation chapter 1. It is an extraordinary picture, and we need it. I don't know if you had a chance to glance at the Sunday papers today. The uh, the lead uh, column in the Sunday Times is titled, Christians Need a Break from Their Tormentors. But one says we need some perspective on that. As has been prayed, Christians in Iran or, or, or in other places are in desperate need. Christians in North Korea were 100,000 in work camps purely because of their faith. They need a break from their tormentors. So in one sense, to say that in the UK, we just need a bit of perspective. Um, we have many, you know, huge freedoms if you're a Christian here today. And yet, of course, the point of the article in the Times is that the atmosphere towards Christians in the UK has become more hostile. So you know people employees taken for court to court for wearing a tiny little brooch of a cross, and that 's not allowed and The times is you know it 's just saying, "Come on, give the Christians a break. Why are we so angry? Why are they being given such a hard time in the press well you 're the press, but um, that 's kind of there, there these is the gist of the art uh, the um, article, and of course. Maybe be the case that uh, you're a Christian and as the climate becomes, yes, a little more hostile to Christianity, the temptation to go silent becomes more apparent. To say nothing when conversation comes up at work or amongst friends. You think, I could probably say something here, but I, I just don't want to cause a fuss. It won't go down very well if I let people know what I think as a Christian on this issue. And were you not a Christian here today, but the temptation perhaps to take these things more seriously, well why would I when lots of people out there in the UK are very dismissive of the Christian faith, why, why would you? Well the book of Revelation is written to Christians in the first century who were suffering really suffering. Iran-type suffering in some places. They're certainly suffering financially. Some are suffering uh, persecution to the point of murder, most obviously, by the Roman Empire. Some suffering at the hands of uh, Jews who haven't accepted Christianity, uh, haven't accepted that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And the book of Revelation really has one very simple point. Jesus wins. That's it. Jesus wins. It's quite a long book, but that's its point. Jesus wins. The, the book of Revelation slightly sets up this battle between two characters, the lamb and the dragon. Sounds a little dramatic. Doesn't sound like the lamb has a chance against a dragon, does it really? But um, the lamb is Jesus Christ. 29 times in the book he's described as the lamb. The dragon, or whatever you make of such things, that's the devil. So 13 times. The dragon is spoken of. And there's a sense in which there's this contest or conflict in the book between the lamb and the dragon. Not really, as we'll see even as, even today. But the point there in, in making it so cut and uh, black and white, lamb, dragon, is well, it's just the same as the rest of the Bible. Essentially, there are only two positions you can be in. You can be with Jesus Christ or you can be against him. And there is no middle ground. So You either belong to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, or you've aligned yourself. I, mean, I know it's unpopular to put it this way, but you've aligned yourself against him. And therefore, biblically, you've aligned yourself with Satan. Oh, you don't need to worship him or overtly or anything like that, but it's just there are only two teams, really, according to the Bible. It's black and white. It's lamb, it's dragon. Naturally, instinctively, we align ourselves with the dragon I mean, picture language we'll get to that in a moment and it's only through the work of Jesus Christ that we can join him be with him and the book of Revelation is clear look whatever is taking place in history if you're in Iran at the moment and being persecuted if you're in Egypt and being arrested at the moment it may look as if Jesus isn't doing so well but whatever is taking place in history at the end of time Jesus wins Because of what's already happened, his death and his resurrection. Jesus wins. So be on his team. Now, you know, it's nice to win, generally, isn't it? I mean, as a small child, I like to win everything. You know, it doesn't matter if it was tiddlywinks or football or whatever competition we were playing or in the house, you want to win. As an adult, I like to win. Whatever game it is—football, Tiddlywinks, or any ball game—I like. It's just nice to win, and you know it's nice to win because it gives you a warm feeling. And losing, some—but most games don't matter too much. This matters because this is a—it's not a game, but this is a competition, no, a battle. And whichever team you're on, well, that'll have eternal consequences. And Jesus wins. So be with him, and the book of Revelation will say, not "Only be with him, live for him, speak of him, serve him." Jesus wins. Now, very briefly, um, more of this in weeks to come, I'm sure. But uh, just in terms of the book of Revelation, if it's unfamiliar to you, uh, it's just a stack of images. It is as if the writers of the Book of Revelation takes an enormous canvas and just plucks things out of the Old Testament and throws them at the canvas. And it's easier to understand if you know your Old Testament well. That's just a part of the truth of it. But sometimes there's no obvious chronology to it. Things just go on repeatedly within the book. You can ask the question. Imagine someone put it this way. Imagine someone who'd never seen a game of football, English football, in their lives ever. And they said, okay, what's football? And you say, well, you know, people, one man passes it to another man and they pass it back and forth and sometimes it goes out of play and they throw it in and then the ball gets thrown back in and there's a few passes and the goalkeeper has it and he kicks it and and then there's a goal and everyone jumps up and down. Okay, okay, I think, just what order does things happen in? Does the throw-in take place before the pass and does the goal take place before the goalkeeper catches it? What order does everything take place in? Uh, no, those are the sort of things that take place in the game. There are goals and passes and throw-ins and goalkeepers. Those sort of things happen in the game. I can't tell you what order they'll come in. I can't tell you when number seven passes to number nine and then he falls over. I can't tell you that. These are the sort of things that happen in the game. And the book of Revelation gives us the sort of things that happen in history. So. People often make mistakes if they try and work out the chronology. Does that happen before that? And does that equal 1957? And does that equal 1968? And no, 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 no. These are the sort of things that will happen in history until Jesus returns. And when he does, he wins That's it. Let's have a look at um, chapter 1. Uh, briefly, uh, verses 1 to 3. It's a Revelation. <clears throat> And it goes a bit like this: It's given from God to Jesus to an angel to John to Jesus's servants. That's us. Chapter one, verse one: The revelation of Jesus Christ, God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his servant, his angel, to his servant John, who testifies to everything. And then verse three gives us the purpose: Here's the purpose of the book? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So we're doing well already this morning. Did you know that? all happily blessed, we're all blessed. Blessed is the one who reads the word of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So right at the beginning of the book, there's a blessing for those who obey what's here. At the end, chapter 22, there's a curse for those who distort the words that are here. So he's saying to take these words seriously and obey Jesus Christ, live for him, because he wins. Two main things about the uh, uh, Jesus Christ then, the risen Jesus Christ in uh, chapter one. First in verses four to eight, the victorious Christ is coming to judge. And then the second thing is nine to 20, the all-powerful Christ is tending to his church. Let's look at them in turn. First then, uh, verses four to eight, the victorious Christ is coming To judge. Verse 4. John writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, Here, here straight away we encounter some of the sort of style of the book of Revelation. We're told here that John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. There's not literally seven. We know historically there were at least ten at the time. But seven in the book of Revelation means all of them. Seven always means fullness or complete. So he's writing to all the churches. It's a letter meant for all Christian churches to read. Then you get this Trinitarian introduction. The Father is the one who who um, who is, who was, who is to come. From the seven spirits. What? What, what does that mean? No, just... The fullness of God's Holy Spirit. That's all it means. And from Jesus Christ. Who gets a number of titles, as he often does throughout the book. He's the faithful witness. That is, in Jesus there's truth. He's the firstborn from the dead. He rose from the dead. He can raise you from the dead too. Stick with him. He's the ruler. Don't depart from the one who rules. And then you get this little burst Uh, that we often get throughout the book of Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Now you get these throughout the book of Revelation. All all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you get this sort of one verse. Anyway, enough of that. Jesus is wonderful and he's conquered through the cross. It just pops out every now and again. Hurrah for the cross of Jesus Christ. essentially pops out in the book of Revelation when you're not expecting it. (laughs) What's going on there? Well, Revelation is littered with little references to this, to Jesus dying upon the cross. And the reason it is because there is when the decisive battle of history was fought. So you get a number of times, slightly unclear, at least on two occasions in the book, the dragon it's enemy, the devil, gathers his forces, he gathers an army to fight, and you think, "Oh, it's going to be a big battle, and then nothing happens. Because the battle was at the cross. It took place there. So as far as the Bible, and certainly the book of Revelation is concerned, if there's a fight between Jesus on one hand, and the devil on the other hand, it's like a boxing match it's okay to put it in these terms and Jesus has knocked the devil to the floor and he's on the canvas and he's very woozy indeed and all we're waiting for is the referee to count to ten. One, one, two and there's no way he's getting off the floor because he's just just he's drooling he's in a complete mess one, two and the referee's got to about seven and that's where we're at in history so there's a defeated opponent but the count hasn't finished yet do you see the picture? There's no way he's getting up off the canvas. And we're just waiting for the time to run out. It was there at the cross that the decisive battle of history took place. And now we're just, well, we're waiting. We're waiting for the victor to be crowned. And what's our role? Well, you get this little, this little picture. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us, the kingdom and priests, to serve him, or to serve his God and Father. And that again is typical of the Book of Revelation. There's a a rescue in order to serve. You know, the, the, uh, the Narnia picture is a very helpful one for this. It may be very familiar to some or not to others. In the uh, the first book that C.S. Lewis wrote then of the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Ed- Edmund is the fool. Uh, Edmund enters into Narnia, and he joins the wrong team. He eats Turkish delight. He joins the White Witch... And he serves her, even though she's awful and wicked, because he thinks it'll make him great. He thinks he'll be a king if he serves the White Witch, so he betrays uh, his three siblings. So he belongs to her team. And of course, in that book, Aslan is a Jesus figure. So Aslan is the rival. You have an evil queen and a good king. But Aslan dies in Edmund's place. He takes the punishment that Edmund deserves, so Edmund is freed from his sins. Okay, wonderful. But what happens after that? Well, obviously, Aslan rises from the dead, just as Jesus does. What does Edmund do at that point? If you've read the book or seen the film, Edmund doesn't say, oh, thank you very much. I'm back off to my Turkish delight now, because that's what I quite fancy. Thank you very much. I'm rescued, back through the wardrobe and back into Blighty for me. Uh, now, Edmund fights. He picks up his sword and he fights for Aslan. I don't get carried away by the metaphor. But when Edmund is rescued, it is in order to serve Aslan, the king. And that's the point here, verse 6. It's the typical language of the whole of Revelation. Jesus Christ has rescued Christians, made us, this exalted language, kingdom, priests, to be active in his service. That's why we've been rescued. Okay, so that's what's going on. We're waiting, uh, we've been rescued. We've been rescued to serve Jesus Christ. We're just waiting, in one sense, for the world to end and getting on with that. But then we get to verse 7. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So John here uses the language of Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 12, to say very clearly, Jesus will return in judgment. There'll be a day when he returns. Now, as often the case with biblical prophecy, there are a number of levels at which this is fulfilled. There are at least three for this. The first takes place in in the year AD 70. Um, So uh, Jesus predicted it in uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, that in, in the year AD 70 Jerusalem would be destroyed. And indeed it was. So the Roman army entered Jerusalem and razed it to the ground. Hundreds of thousands killed. You can read the reports of it and the Jewish, Jewish historians of the time, people like Josephus. The city is devastated in AD 70. So, verse 7, those who pierced Jesus Christ were judged. Those who were involved in putting Jesus to death, well, were devastated in the year AD 70. And that makes sense of lots of the, the temporal references in the book. So chapter 1, verse 1, what must soon take place? Verse 3, the time is near. Because that first judgment was near and it took place just a, few, a decade or two after this was written. So that's the first level. The second, we'll get on to when we see the, uh, the letters uh, in the next few weeks, that Jesus is active in history. There are lots of little comings, small localized events when Jesus judges a church. He says, you, you, you know, we're going to shut you down because your behavior is abhorrent. So it's the first in AD 70. There are lots of localized little tremors before the volcano comes. But finally, at the end of history, there's the final day of judgment. when Jesus returns and the world ends and you won't miss that day. In his language, the stars will fall from the sky. It'll be obvious. No one will miss when Jesus returns. You ever hear something on the news. Apparently people claim Jesus has returned in South America, don't? Everyone will know. Now, the CIA have tried this trick once. I don't know if you know this. In the 1960s, the Kennedy brothers, uh, early 60s, obviously, the Kennedy brothers were obsessed with Fidel Castro, post-59 and uh, his takeover of Cuba, obsessed. And so the CIA was authorised, you can read all the documents, well, not all of them, most of them is blacked out, but anyway, you can read the gist of the documents. The CIA was authorised to assassinate Fidel Castro, and they did try literally everything. So there was the exploding cigar. You can read, documented, they tried to make an exploding cigar to blow up and kill him in his face. They tried lining his wetsuit with um, poison. So when he put on a wetsuit, he'd be poisoned. They tried putting snakes in his bed. I know it sounds all primitive and beneath the CIA, but they tried all these things. One of the most bizarre was in 1962, they tried to make all the Catholics on the island, of which there are many, many in Cuba, rebel by making them think that Jesus was going to return. So as many as could be persuaded of the, the Roman Catholic priests, who were still largely loyal to the states, they, they were preaching, Jesus is coming soon, Jesus is coming soon, Jesus is coming soon, very soon, very soon. And then on one particular day in the 62, the American warship drew near to the coast and fired thousands of starbursts over the island. You know, those exploding things which just light up the sky so you can see what's going on. And all the... This is it! This is it! Jesus is coming back! Can you not see? And no one fell for it at all. And uh, uh, Cuba was not the CIA's finest little venture in any sense. Now, it's not like that when he really returns. And even the occupants of the island knew that. Look, if Jesus is returning, it'll be a bit more than a few fireworks in the sky. Everyone will know. It will be obvious when he returns. And on that final day, there'll be enormous celebration from those who are his people. But as verse 7 puts it, great morning. Great morning if you're on the wrong side. The victorious Christ, he is coming to judge. Victory is won. The outcome is absolutely certain. It's just a matter of time. So keep going. Keep going. Jesus wins. Victorious Christ is coming to judge. Second little thing. Uh, Verses nine to twenty. The all-powerful Christ is tending to his church. Verse nine. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was in exile. He personally had refused to renounce his faith in Christ, and so he was uh, uh, an exiled on this remote island of Patmos. And uh, one Sunday morning, he hears a voice, and he gets, I think you'd have to say, a fairly extraordinary vision that then dominates the rest of the book. Uh, what you get in chapter 1, it's largely uh, the language of Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 but picks up on other themes or pictures from the Old Testament. And again, it is this, the idea of this enormous canvas and loads of Old Testament ideas thrown at it in order to produce a picture. The book of Revelation is not like one of Paul's letters. Logical, okay, I see how that idea flows. It is a bit of a head rush. It just overflow, overwhelms with ideas and pictures. It's designed to do that. So what's this picture we get then of Jesus Christ? This is the one who is risen and has ascended to be with God the Father on high. Well, he's like the Son of Man. Uh, verse, uh, Verse 13. He's like the Son of Man. That is the one with everlasting dominion in Daniel 7 and 10. He's wearing golden robes, Well, that's like the Old Testament high priest used to wear. So that sort of picture. His head and hair, they're white, just like God the Father, showing he has the wisdom of the ancient of days. His eyes are like blazing fire, penetrating insight in the book of Revelation, ability to judge perfectly. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. That's the ideal man of glory from the Song of Songs. His voice, terrifying. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That's Ezekiel 43, the sound of God coming to live with his people. He holds seven stars. They're angels. That is, the heavenly powers are in his hand. From his mouth comes a sword. Why, in Isaiah 11, that's the sword that judges the wicked and rescues the poor. His face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Again, that's a picture from Judges chapter 5, the smile of God. God's smile in Judges 5 destroys his enemies and brings enormous relief and pleasure to his people. Here, Here is the one who fulfills every positive promise and image and idea that the Old Testament has to make. John sees all this in verse 17. Well, he collapses. He collapses, and of course you would do. Can you imagine meeting someone this afternoon who looks a bit like this? Blazing eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth, juggling stars, real stars, not little fake things. It's an overwhelming picture, and it's meant to be. Here is Jesus Christ. He's the same one. He's the same one as the lamb who was slain, but now he is raised in his glory. He is magnificent. And John says, sorry, Jesus says to John, look, I may be terrifying, but verse 17, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I bracket all things. I was there before the creation of the world. I am the, f- the consummation of this world. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Because death couldn't hold me. Indeed, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Can you that? Extraordinary thing. Death is a creature that Jesus can lock up. What do people really fear? People fear death when they get older. People fear cancer. It's just a creature that Jesus can lock up. Or death and hell are just little, I mean, they're terrifying creatures, but to Jesus, they're just like little dogs on a leash. You know those ridiculous celebrity dogs? A Paris Hilton, little whatever they are. Handbag dog. That's what, that's what death is to Jesus, just a little creature. Shh, I've beaten you, shh. Pathetic. Terrifying for us. Oh, give us a nasty bite. But just a little creature to Jesus. He holds them on a leash. So here is the divine, pure, sovereign, all-seeing, all-powerful Christ. He fights for his people. He destroys his enemies. He judges all perfectly. And he lives with his people. So if you were a persecuted Christian in the first century... It is wonderful to know that this is the one you with. That this is your king. And no one can resist him when he chooses to fight against them. Nothing can happen to you that he will not allow. And if you're a Christian in the 21st century, even in London, with its very mild little persecution, but you may be tempted to give up. Or more likely, tempted to compromise, to avoid exclusion. This is the living one. And be assured that the all-powerful Lord Jesus is protecting his church. Nothing can happen to his church that he does not allow. Because no one can stand against him. His enemies are prone on the canvas, defeated. No one stands against him. And where is he? It's an important part of the picture. Where exactly is he? Well, verse 12, he's among the lampstands. He's walking amongst golden lampstands in verse 12. Now, verse 20 will tell us what they are. The golden lampstands are the churches. So the, the point is, Jesus is walking amongst his churches. Now, what lampstand? what is all this about? In the Old Testament, in the temple there was a golden lampstand. There wasn't a lot of furniture, just uh, three things essentially, Uh, an altar, a table, and a lampstand. The golden lampstand had, you've probably seen a picture of it, but it had seven um, arms coming out from it, flat, so seven lampstands coming out of one. And if you were a priest in the Old Testament, what would you do? You took care of the lampstand. You know, there'd be candles burning in it, and when they burned down, you'd sort of, flick out the wax and put in a new candle. When the candle's burning low, you might sort of tend to the wick and trim it a little bit so it could um, burn more brightly. You know, if wax has dripped all the way down the candlestick, you'd wipe it off and burnish the gold so everything looks nice again. That's the job of a priest. And the point here is that that's that's what Jesus is doing. He's among his churches tending them, caring for them, Sometimes there'll be a little, you know, that needs that that bit needs to be thrown away. This bit needs trimming. This bit needs a bit of polishing on the side here. But he's amongst his churches, tending them, caring for them. Now, very obviously, in Revelation, he does that in two ways. The first way is this. The first way is by his spirit. Is where the picture language takes off a little bit. But there are seven lampstands here. Where are the lamps? Very Well, having a lampstand, but you've got no lamp to put in it. Well, you may flick on a page if you want, but it's chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And the point here is that it's the spirit of God that gives light to the church, that empowers and strengthens the church. So that's why... If you're a Christian, that's why we as a church keep going, because God's spirit is at work amongst us, giving us light. Closely related to that, of course, is he does it by his word. So how does Jesus tend and care for his churches? Well, chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to the seven churches. And again, the point is that Jesus is taking care of his churches by his word and his spirit together. It is by reading these words, by giving us these letters, that Jesus will protect us, care for us, trim us, polish us, throw bits away that need throwing away. That's what he's doing. And we we'll see that in the next few weeks as we look at these seven letters. Jesus is rebuking, he's soothing, he's tending, he's caring, he's chastising. That's what he does by his word. So if nothing else, take away that image of chapter 1 verse 20. Because there's two elements to it. Do you see that in chapter 1, verse 20? Jesus is both holding the churches in his hands. So he's holding seven stars in his right hand. He's holding the church in his hands. And also he's walking amongst the churches. It's a sort of a double picture to make sure we get it. Jesus is looking after his church. He won't let it go. He won't let his people go. He's active amongst us. Even if we don't always recognize it. We just had the the great fun and privilege last week. We went away as a family skiing, which was a hoot. And uh, for the first time, our uh, six-year-old Nathan came with us. And uh, he did all right. You know, he did all right. There were moments I was even proud. um, uh, But one day we pushed him a bit too hard. And uh, there was meltdown, not of snow, of boy. On the slope, just com- wail, uh, uh, wailing like I've never quite heard him produce. And no, 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 no. I can't do it. I won't do it. I'm never leaving this slope. I never want to go home. You know, just a complete irrationality meltdown. Okay, okay, what do, what do we do? We've got to get to the bottom. No! Okay, uh, you, we can't stay here all night. Yes! Uh, you know, just... Uh, What do we do? What do we do? Uh, And it was was one run too many, and the run was a bit too difficult for him. We'd made that, we'd got it a bit wrong, in truth. What do we Well, eventually, what happened? I got got in between my legs and skied down with this not inconsiderable size boy now between my legs. Now, to be honest, personally, it was exhausting. It was exhausting because you're carrying a dead weight. But what was happening there? From his perspective, he was skiing. All of a sudden, we were going down this mountain, wee, every time we turned, wee. Meanwhile, I'm, oh, I'm at the point of claps, but he, wee, wee. This is fun, isn't it? Now, from his perspective, he's skiing down the mountain, but it's being done for him, with him. He won't fall. He won't tumble. And I was making sure he got down. And all of a sudden, he was having a great time when he was surrounded by someone stronger than him to protect him. And that's the picture of Revelation chapter one. Makes all the difference in the world when you know that, if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ, he's amongst us. He's with us. He's too strong. He doesn't get exhausted like a human man does. He's amongst us. Protecting us, securing us, making sure. Actually, when we remember that, we can have a good time as Christians. Whee! Not always, because sometimes suffering's hard. Sometimes the Christian life is one of persecution. Yeah, it is. But when we know He's with us, walking amongst us, holding us, it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus Christ wins victorious. He's been victorious already. And one day he'll return, and that victory will be evident. And what's he doing now? He's tending to his church. So trust him. Live for him. Serve him in the time that he's given us, because he wins. And so to be with him is very wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, there's much in this book which is strange, a little bewildering at first glance. But thank you that the the main picture is very, very clear. That Jesus Christ has won. He's defeated death. Those of us who are Christians already know that he has bought us from our slavery. He has paid for us, so we now belong to him rather than being hostile to him. And that being the case, Father, knowing that Jesus wins, if we're Christians, will we serve him? Know that we've been made a kingdom to serve him, priests to serve him. Will we give our lives to serving him in the full confidence that that is the most sensible thing to do. Because his victory is certain. And on this day, that is eminently clear. He's conquered death, and one day his victory will be evident to all. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name.